0: The following is a sermon from the church at Cherrydale in Greenville, South Carolina. To learn more, visit us at tccherrydale.com. Father, we are thankful that you uh, have seen fit to appoint the the times and the boundaries of our lives such that we're in a city like Greenville uh, at a time like this. Uh, Thank you that among all the places that we could live now, we're in a place where the gospel is proclaimed clearly, and there are churches that are doing healthy work to invest in making disciples and proclaiming the gospel. So we pray your blessings on them. We pray that you would remind us that we're not alone, that you would give us partnership that extends beyond the walls of this building We thank you for even the churches in our backyard this morning who are seeking to reach this part of the city. We pray for our friends next door at Hampton Park, for Summit Cherrydale, for the other good work that is happening here in this area. We ask that the gospel would be seen and heard this morning, that you would use the work of those churches to make disciples and send missionaries until the good day when you return. We ask that for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, Carla read for us this morning our text, which is Genesis 2, 15 to 17. Now, I told someone that this morning, and they said, Matt, we are never going to finish this series at this pace, all right? Three stinking verses, one of which you pointed to last week. You're really only preaching two verses. What's going on? Well, I want you to imagine... We've set this series in the context of opening statements, so uh, the feel of a courtroom. As a lawyer gets up and gives a, a statement of defense for his client about some presumed reality, some crime that was committed, and you might imagine as the lawyer stands to give this opening statement, he begins with, may it please the court, and then begins to point to the upstanding character of his client, right? And uh, the fact that he's served on these boards and these committees and would never do anything like what's being presumed. But then there's a certain moment in this opening statement where the lawyer is going to switch gears a bit and say something like, on the night that was alleged, now the sentences that come after that introductory phrase are altogether different than all that's been set up to that point, right? They're going to capture the essence of really what the entirety of the opening statement is meant to do. Not all words are created equal. If you've read a book recently, you know this to be true, right? Not every chapter is equally weighty to the plot line of the overall story, not every paragraph within a chapter is equally weighty. And in the very same way, in the opening chapters, in the opening statement of God, we have certain words that really turn the plot of the story. And these two phrases, these two sentences, verses 16 and 17 in Genesis chapter 2, do that for us. It's God as the supreme law you're saying, come on, lean in with me. What I'm about to do is going to define everything that's getting ready to happen. So I wanted us, as we're, we're casting this series, to slow down here and make sure we capture the essence of what God is trying to do in these two supreme statements. Now to get there, we've got to remember where we've been up to this point. Genesis chapter 1, what Brandon and I have attempted to do is to distill each week's sermon into one simple sticky phrase, so it's test time this morning. In Genesis chapter 1, we see God create, and Brandon said that the essence of Genesis 1, 1 to 25, is that God speaks with authority. Say that with me this morning. Let's wake up together. Aren't right, you guys ready? God speaks with authority. That is what we see from the opening chapter of Genesis, a creator God who speaks with authority such that everything that was made comes into being at the mere spoken word of God. And then last week, beginning in verse 26, with the fashioning of Adam and Eve, these image bearers, and all the way up through the land that God places them in in 2.14, I taught on the idea that God creates intentionally. Join with me. God creates intentionally. Now, I'm going to keep you in suspense this morning for this sticky phrase from Sermon 3. We'll hold that till the end, and in a sense, see if you can guess the phrase as we work through these two great commandments that God gives. Now you say, hold on, Matt. You blew it, bro. You watched too much football yesterday. Because there's only one command here that God gives to Adam and Eve here in the opening statement, right? We, those that have been around the church for any length of time we're familiar with this command, right? Don't eat from the tree. There's something that's out of bounds that you're commanded not to eat for, from. But I want you to notice there's a command that actually comes before that command. Notice in 2.16. And the Lord God commanded the man. Now, certainly this command is going to go to the negative in verse 17, but there's a, there's a first command. You are free to eat from any tree in the garden, and it's worth pausing there for a moment. In fact, this is critical for our understanding of who God is and his work in the world. He says, before he says, don't eat, he says, eat freely, okay? So command number one, if you're taking notes, would simply be that God says in verse 16, eat freely from all the trees in the garden that I've created for you. Now we learn some things about God from this, right? God, as James is going to say, is a good gift giver. Every good and perfect gift comes from above, from the Father of lights, in whom there's no changing or shifting of shadow. God is a good gift giver who gives his people exactly what they need to thrive in the garden. And it's here that we see not merely that he gives them the bare minimum of what they need to thrive, but the, uh, what we see from this creation is diversity of trees, all the trees. It's not just an apple tree. It's not just, I don't even know what fruit grows on, so I'm going to mess this up, but it's not just whatever different kinds of fruit grows on, right? He says, I, I've, I've given it a diversity of these things, for you to eat from freely. This reminds us, really two flip sides of the same coin. One, nothing that we need is off limits. Now we could actually probably end a sermon right there. Like if we really had burned in our hearts the reality that there is nothing that is off limits that we actually need, it, it would probably heed our sin to a great degree, right? We have this propensity to believe that there's something on the other side that I need to thrive, survive, find joy, fulfillment, contentment. But what we see from this verse 16 statement is that everything we need to eat freely, to enjoy, to work, cultivate the ground that God's put us in, he's given us. And the flip side of that coin is God. not, not only is there nothing that we need that's off limits, but everything that we need is in bounds, right? So God sees and he knows what his image bearers need to fulfill their created design, right? And he says, I've given you all all of that. This, friends, is what protects verse 17 from feeling like mom said you got to eat your green beans, right? It's easy to feel like God's somewhat arbitrary and saying you got to do this, Eat this stuff because it's good for you. Don't eat that because it's bad for you. But what we have here is God saying, I've given you everything that you need to thrive. Eat freely from these things and enjoy the provision of God, which is going to help us in picking up the relationship between these two great commands in 16 and 17, because there, there is a correlation. You've probably noticed this if you've tried to walk with Jesus for any length of time between your feasting on things that are good and beautiful and pure and your distaste for things that are out of bounds, right? The answer to avoidance of things that are out of bounds isn't to work really hard to avoid things that are out of bounds. It's to actually fill up on things that are good and beautiful and pure, right? So if I'm famished at the end of a day, I'll eat pretty much anything, right? I mean, it it really doesn't matter a whole lot. I mean, there are a lot of things that I'm not going to choose to eat, but you get me hungry enough and I'll eat most anything. The principle is true in our spiritual lives as well, is that as we are famished of things that are beautiful, pure, good for us, our proclivity to engage in things that are like the equivalent of the gas station honey bun, right, is going to go way up, astronomically up. So God says, eat of the things that I've created, that I've given you to thrive. And then in verse 17, the flip, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now we got to do some heavy lifting with verse 17. This verse is tricky. It's a spicy meatball for sure. Verse 17, donate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, now what's being implied here? What, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. This is the first time, verse 9 alludes to this. We've got the creation of the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's not mentioned anywhere else in the scriptures, at least not by this name. So what's going on with this tree? It's not the tree that is good and evil. It's not a magical tree that somehow we eat of its fruit and are awakened in some way, right? This is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what we see here is important to to pick up that this tree is created by God. You can't miss that assumption from the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, we can't make the faulty assumption that somehow in a formless and void world, God creates all things and then there's just this one mangy tree that pops up that God had nothing to do with. Right? If God declared that everything that he made is good and very good, then this tree fits in that rubric somehow. It is a good tree that is created by God to do something significant for us. And that significant thing for us is probably attached to this knowing good and evil, for when you do, you will surely die. There's something about the tree that is attached to the consequences— that knowing, eating from its fruit will lead me to consequences that I will know. And here, the word know is not used the way we might in an intellectual sense. Like, I w- will know, but it's used experientially. Uh, it's to know in the sense that you're going to actually experience the consequences of good and evil, knowing good and evil, which we're going to see is going to be the choice of evil and thus death. So, God ties this tree. To the outworking of their knowledge, their experience of death. But perhaps something more fundamental is going on with this tree that helps us understand its purpose. I want you to notice in verse 16 and 17 what we have God doing, and it is a great gift of grace. He is declaring for His image bearers what is good and what is bad. Now, to our modern sensibilities, that seems like, nah, bro, I want to figure that thing out on my own. But to the counsel of the biblical writers, you figuring out good and evil on your own is a terrible fate, right? You want the grace of God, the creator of all, to look over all and declare for us, this is good. Good you need this, and you'll thrive. This is not good. You don't want this, or it's going to zap life and lead to consequences that you don't fully understand, haven't fully appreciated. Now, we might ask the question, as any thoughtful Bible reader would would ask here, if, if we were doing kind of a speak back, yeah, but Matt... Why did God create the tree in the first place, right? Like, why didn't he just create a world that didn't have this stinking tree? If he knew that Adam and Eve were going to sin as a result of the fruit of that tree— Why create it in the first place? And if if he was gonna create it, why didn't he create it with one of those like fences around it? Like we went to Yellowstone this summer, you know, the this ground is boiling, right? Don't touch here. There's a there's a fence around this area. Why didn't he like put the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, and then put a fence around it? Like stay away. Put it tuck it back in the back corner of the garden, where they're not likely to interact with it. This feels a bit like the parent who puts the sharp steak knife on the kid's plate with dinner and says, don't touch it, right? I mean, we, it feels a bit disingenuous for God to do this, doesn't it? It does unless, unless we understand something fundamental to our image-bearing mission that is necessitated in the creation of this tree, And I think that is exactly what's happening. I think God recognizes that there is something fundamental to his image bearers submitting to his authority and obeying his word that is at the essence of what it means to be an image bearer. And that, friends, is a potential that would have been impossible were it not for the creation of the tree. Were we not to have an option to step out from under, to disobey God's dictate of what is good and evil, then we would not have this ability to image him by submitting to his authoritative word. I think Tim Keller captures this, the essence of this, in a way that I don't have the experience or the maturity to do so, and so I'll read his quote He says, I had a middle son, and he was a very hard child to get to obey. None of you have this, right? And I would say to him, obey me. I'm your father, and I told you to do this. So just do it because I've told you to do so. And you know what would always happen? My son would say, Dad, I'd be happy to obey if you could just make it reasonable for me. Just tell me why this thing is helpful to me or to the human race or to whatever. And I would say, and and hear, hear this aspect of the quote. I think this is essential. I would say, if you only obey me when I explain it to you, then you're not actually obeying me. You're just agreeing with me. I want you to obey me because I'm 45 and you're 10. And I know a little bit more about life than you do And I don't want to have to explain it to you because I couldn't get it in your 10-year-old brain anyway. So God says, don't eat from the tree and no explanation. The point is, I want you to obey because you love me. Just because I'm God and you're not. I want you to do something, not because it profits you, not because you know the reason why, but just because I'm Lord and Savior and you're not. Just do it because you love me and for myself alone. And they didn't, Keller says. I think Keller captures for us in that quote the essence of what is going on here, that God is recognizing that essential to the image-bearing capacity of Adam and Eve is the ability to submit under his authority. They image God by obeying him and perhaps a smaller limitation could not be imagined, right? I mean, this prohibition is akin to walking into a kid's toy room and saying, four-year-old, play from anything in this room. But you see that one little one-by-one red block over there in the corner? That one's off limits. You got everything. I even blew up a bounce house in here for you to enjoy. But there's one thing that's off limits, and you're going to model trust in me, imaging me, by playing with 99% of the world that I've given you, and avoiding that one thing. And don't we, friends, reflect our inatomness by our proclivity to be drawn to the one thing that's declared out of bounds? Right? How? Adam-like are we in our inability to enjoy the good gifts that God has given and be constantly drawn to the things that he has declared off-limits. We see, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 30. The same reality, we're on the backside of what's going to happen in Adam and Eve's sin. But we're going to see a very similar reality, and in fact, it's a reality that's going to frame the Old Testament. God's going to continue to hold up before his people these realities of trust and obedience. And as Joshua takes Moses' place and leads them there, and God, through the prophet, through Moses, is declaring for the people what they're going to do in the land. really captures the essence of this in verse 15, Deuteronomy 30:15. See today, I've set before you life and prosperity, death and adversity. For I'm commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments, statutes, and ordinances, that you may live and multiply. Doesn't that sound familiar, friends, to Genesis 1? You may live and multiply, and the Lord God may bless you in the land that you're entering to possess. The overtones to the garden are clear, but if your heart turns away and you do not listen and you are led astray to bow down to other gods and to serve them, I tell you today that you will certainly perish. You will not prolong your days in the land you are entering to possess across the Jordan. Friends, this is why I think opening statement is the essence of Genesis 1 through 11, because yes, that, that Bible that you hold in your lap feels like a really big book, but friends, it's a repeat performance time and time again. What we see played out in Genesis 2 and 3 is going to be repeated time and again. The, story, and the names are going to change, the stories are going to change, the themes going to be the very same. God speaks and people, image bearers, Thinking they know better than God how to define good and evil. This is exactly what Eve's going to do in Genesis chapter 3, isn't she? What does she say about the fruit? She says, It looks good. She says what is good over and against what God says is good. Which leads us to our phrase for this week, and it's this God knows best. God knows best. You're like, Matt, that's why we pay you the big bucks, bud. Right? God knows what is best. But, friends, let me suggest to you that this is a bit equivalent to those songs that we heard as little kids Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Some of you may have learned that as a six-year-old, but I bet you it took you a good bit over a couple of decades to actually come to believe that Jesus loves you. This you know because the Bible told you so. I bet it took you some pain, some rebellion, some wondering. I bet you still doubt it on some days. You see, the reality is the Bible isn't nearly as complex as we like to make it, or believe that it is. In its essence, it is, do I really believe something simple like this, that God knows what is best? Consider how God demonstrates his knowledge of what is best here. He does it in a way that's attempted to be replicated by every family in this room. He knows the consequences that that await, and because of his deep love for his image bearers, He says, I don't want you to experience those. I don't want you to go there, because I know what awaits. Now think about this command in the ears of Adam. Death? What's death? He doesn't even have a category for that at this point. There is no way that he can speak back to God and say, well, that consequence doesn't make sense. I mean, this is categorically unknown to him. It's similar to God telling Noah, it's gonna rain, build a boat. What? I've never seen this. So God is asking Noah to do something fundamentally complex, and that is trust his knowledge of things that make absolutely no sense, trust his awareness of consequences that friends, we can't get our minds around. Trust that he is the, to mix a metaphor, that, that he is the 45-year-old father and we're the 10-year-old kid, and he simply can't get in our heads all the reasons why certain things are in bounds and certain things are out of bounds, and to lose the muscle-flexing cultural reality that God owes us an explanation. Because, friends, he just doesn't. He knows what is best, and he has given you what you need to thrive. Consider this. We'll we'll see in next week's text, specifically, the creation of uh, Eve. What does the text tell us about the creation of Eve? God saw that it was what? What? What's the language there, those of you that are familiar with your Bible? What does God say? God saw that it was not good that man would be alone. Now, the idea that we have with our modern minds is Adam's walking around in the garden. Like, that rhino has a pear, right? That aardvark has a pear. God, where's mine? You're holding out on me. But this is not what happens in Genesis 2, is it? It is as if Adam is fundamentally clueless and God is the one that sees Adam as alone, not Adam saying, I'm lonely, God, give me something. But God sees what Adam needs before he knows he needs it and provides that need for him in a way that makes every husband in the room amen, right? God knew what I needed better than I knew what I needed and he provided that for me. He addressed what is not good with the creation of that which is good, and gave it to me as a good gift. So friends, that then proposes a question for us all. Do you actually believe that God knows what is best? Do you actually believe that God knows what is best? Do you actually believe that God knows what is best in the echoes of the opening statement? Do you actually believe that God knows that it's better for you to rest than to work constantly trying to get ahead? Do you actually believe that God knows that breakneck work isn't good for the human soul? Do you really believe that God is aware that that kind of pace is ultimately going to crush you even if you think you're crushing it right now? Do you believe that God knows what is best? Do you believe that one man, one woman, and a lifelong marriage commitment is best? Do you you believe that? Do you believe that your work, however mundane it may be, is actually a part of what God is doing to restore the order and structure and beauty of this world to His new heavens and new earth design? Or do you step out from under it believing it's kind of trivial and therefore you cut some corners every once in a while? Let me suggest to you that every instinct you have towards sin is actually at a more fundamental layer, an answer to the question, I don't actually believe God knows what is best. So I'm going to make my own choice. And friends who are here this morning and thinking, man, this is, this, is, this is heavy, this is weighty, God knows what is best, and therefore I've got to give my life to constantly avoiding what, what I want to do, my inclinations, and, and trusting in what, what, what he says, I, I don't know that I have it in me. You are absolutely right. You don't have it in you. That is why week after week after week we're reminded to look to Christ the one who modeled perfectly for us a counterintuitive choice that entrusted to what God knows is best, didn't he? On the night he was betrayed in the, the garden, saying, in prayer to the Father, this is not what I want, but nevertheless, not what I want, but what you want. If anything didn't make sense, it is the cross of Jesus Christ, and yet it was the very means by which God accomplished the salvation of his children. God saved us in a way that would boggle the human mind. Talk about complexity for a 10-year-old. You try to script this plan of salvation, and yet it was God's chosen path to save his image bearers who stepped out from under his authority. We have a truer and greater Adam in Jesus Christ who knew God knew what is best and demonstrated it through active submission to the cross. And from a very different tree extends to us the invitation this morning take and eat the fruit. Of a much better tree than the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. Take and eat of the fruit of the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who substituted in your stead and grants you an empowering spirit that can give you the boldness and the courage to by that power say, I believe God knows what is best and I'll live as if that's true. Friends, would you join me as we pray? Our God, it's helpful for us to be humbled by your word. It is so easy for us to flex our muscles and and to propose that we understand better than you do how this life is meant to be lived. We see in our first parents the tragic consequences of trusting our own ability to discern good and evil apart from your authoritative word, and we see in ourselves that story played out time and time again. So, God, this morning, would you, by the sweet mercies of your Spirit, remind us again that you know what is best, that you have given us every good gift. Would we taste and enjoy, would we be like the psalmist, a tree planted by streams of water, that yields fruit in season. Would you make us men and women who feast on your goodness and have childlike trust that you know better than we how this life is meant to be lived. As we stand and reflect now through song on the greatness of Jesus Christ, would you turn our affections heavenward Point our eyes to Christ. Captivate us with the beauty of his perfection and empower us by your spirit to worship full obedience. We ask for Christ's sake. Amen.